In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Helping other people. I think that's beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. I hope that the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and the wind is at your back. I got an incredible show for you today that is border, it's bordering on the cusp of change. For those of my listeners that are real aware of, of different states of consciousness and higher states of consciousness, and I have with me the co-founder of Psychedelics Today, breathwork facilitator and therapist, Kyle Buller. Kyle subsequently earned his BA in transpersonal psychology from Burlington College, where he focused on studying the healing potential of non-ordinary states of consciousness by exploring shamanism, Reiki, local medicine, medicinal plants, and plant medicine, holotropic breathwork. He's been studying breathwork since October 2010 with Lenny and Elizabeth Gibson of Dream Shadow Transpersonal Breathwork. He earned his MS in clinical mental health counseling with an emphasis in somatic psychology. His clinical background in mental health consists of working with at-risk teenagers in crisis and with individuals experiencing an early episode of psychosis and providing counseling to undergraduate, graduate students in our university set. We're talking about the vital project, but before we get into all of that, let me just dish it off to you, Kyle. Thanks for being here today, my friend. Thank How you. are you? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm wonderful. It is sunny and beautiful here where I'm at in Colorado. So um, birds are chirping, sunshine is beaming down, and yeah, it's a beautiful day. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful time of year. And it's also a very intriguing time for psychedelic therapy and plant medicine. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your your pathway to get here. Co-founder of Psychedelics Today. You've been doing breath work for over a decade. Like you've you've been understanding these different states of consciousness. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you got there. 
Yeah, you want the short or long version? I want the long <laughs> version, man. Give me the give me the detailed version. Cool, cool. So I've always, I guess, really been interested in consciousness, even as a young kid. Like I always was a vivid dreamer, had lucid dreams. I would go into these dream states where like I would remember where I was and I would always want to go back there. And um yeah, so just really just interested in, in consciousness in, in a sense. And um, you know, as a kid does, you know, you spin around, you like to watch the world kind of move. And I remember that always like really captivating me. Like, oh, this is interesting. And also having like really weird outer body experiences as a kid. And then as you get older, and I think your ego starts to become more structured and formed, you start to close off to that world. And that started happening as I started getting older and life starts to, you know, happen to you a bit. Um, and then I came across this interesting book when I was a freshman in, in high school. It was called uh, Snowboarding to Nirvana. And it was about a guy that went over to Nepal. He happened to run into, uh, I think, a Buddhist monk. Um, and then uh, the, the monk was teaching him meditation. And then, you know, there was like some really cool stuff about like teleportation and, you know, kind of all that mystical uh, stories. And that I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Like, can, can people actually like reach those states through meditation and, and these different techniques. And they had some practices in the book and I would practice meditation and I'm a snowboarder myself. And I was thinking like, Oh, maybe this could like, you know, help me. And I remember, and I was also a swimmer growing up. I swam year around and I would use kind of mindfulness as I would compete too. Like I would try to drop out of my mind and just be in my body. And um, so it was really interesting. And then when I was a sophomore, we had a, uh, well, no, yeah. So freshman, we had to do, do that book report. I picked that book. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, um, it was New Year's Eve and I didn't want to go out partying and, and doing all that stuff. So me and my brother and um, one of his friends, we went out snowboarding. I grew up in New Jersey um, and we do night skiing over here. Um, and I went over to uh, Pennsylvania out into the Poconos. And it was really warm during the day. So a lot of the mat, like snow got kicked up, um, you know, soft snow, and then it started freezing during the night. Um, so it's like icy. Uh, if anybody is a snowboarder, you know, the East Coast or a skier, it's called the Ice Coast <laughs> because it's just, you know, it's constantly icy. Um, and there was just this mound of snow. So I was flying down this hill I, and th these hills are small. So my uh, typical kind of thing was, just point the snowboard and go as fast as possible down, down these hills. Um, but the, um, the, the trail I was on, was kind of like a snake. Um, it kind of did this, like this kind of switch back and there's like three of them and it was called the Nile mile. Um, and I'm glad that it rhymes with my name. <laughs> um, so I was going around a turn on my toe edge really fast. And the way that the light was hitting and I came out, and there was this mound of snow and it was in the blind spot, the way the, the light was, um, you know, casting. And I remember time started to slow down and I just said, oh shit, if I hit this, I'm going to die. And so I tried stopping, I tried turning, I tried doing everything. And it was like, everything was just going so slow and a million thoughts just started racing through my head and going, I need to get out of this. If I hit this, you know, this is going to be really, my life's going to be over. So it was like this thing sucked me in and I just got sucked into this mound and I flew through the air about like 30 feet, not high. It was like, you know, kind of low on the ground, but just very far. Nose of my snowboard hit, my shoulder hit, and I heard a loud pop. 
and I was gasping for air and I probably slid down the mountain, I don't know, another like 20 so feet. And I was gasping for air. And since I heard the pop and I had immediate pain in my chest, I thought I broke a rib. And I remember just laying face down in, in the snow, just grunting, like, ah, ah, like can't breathe. And luckily my brother and his friends stopped by, they were right behind me and they went down to go get help. And then I'm watching, so I'm there kind of alone on the mountain. Um, they went down to go get uh, ski patrol. And I'm just watching all these people whiz by me, all these parents or kids. And I'm sitting there like death grunting, kind of like the noise I was just making. And there are these two snowboarders that stopped. <laughs> they said, hey, man, you all right? I'm like, not, not really. And like, do you have a, do you have a light? <laughs> I guess I wanted to smoke some cigarettes. <laughs> but <laughs> they they were like, okay, you're obviously like really hurt. We need to put some snowboards in front of you because people are going to come whipping around this turn and not see you, and they're going to crash into you. <laughs> so thankfully, they put the snowboards in front of me. They hung out with me, and these are the type of kids, um, you know, they're throwing snowballs at you in, in the park, calling you all sorts of foul names. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the stereotype. And these are the only kids that stopped. You know, I'm watching parents whiz by me, not stopping, not asking if I'm okay. And again, like I'm making sounds that that don't sound good you know and i understand like you know there there are people that just hang out on the ground on the trail and i don't always stop but if somebody is like you know vocalizing i i would stop and say you know something's not right um and so my brother came back maybe like a half an hour later um and he said nobody's coming for you I said, oh, what do you mean nobody's coming for me? He's like, I don't know. We told the lifty and the lifty just didn't really seem to care or say anything. So these kids got up and they said, we're going to we're gonna go down there and make sure these guys like get their asses up here. Thankfully, it's a small mountain. And about like, I think five or 10 minutes after they left, a first responder came by and they checked in with me and um, they're trying to take all my vitals. I'm helping them out too. And uh, they said, okay, we need to get you a toboggan. <clears throat> In the meantime, I hear that my dad was in the bar, um, just hanging out, eating dinner. Um, and uh, some kid comes in and says, I guess they, they went to their, their parents and said, oh man, there's this, there's this guy that's like dying on the Nile mile. Um, and it's it looks really hurt. And my, supposedly my dad said, oh, he was saying, oh, that really sucks for that guy. And then like a couple minutes later, my brother comes in and said, you know, Kyle's, really hurt on the Nile mile. He's not doing well. Um, and so I think that, yeah, it was like, Oh, oh God, what's happening. So thankfully they got the toboggan. They brought me down to first aid. By the time I got there, um, I was like, yeah, I was just not feeling great. I had all this pain in my chest and my, my abdomen. And they were looking at me and said, you know, are you usually this pale? I don't know. I don't typically look at my complexion, you know, um, and and I can't really see myself. And, they, and then they said, you know, uh, do you really do you have a, normally a low pulse? Again, something I'm not really thinking about it when I'm 16. And I said, I, I don't know. And they're like, well, your ribs are fine. There's no bruising. Doesn't seem like anything's broken, um, but your vitals are really low. And we think you have internal injuries. And at that moment, you know, I didn't really grow up religious. I think I stopped going to church when I was like five or four or something like that. But I started praying to God. And I remember the first thought that popped through my head was, oh, shit, I'm going to die tonight. And I don't want to die. I'm way too young. And I said, God, if you're out there, please, please, please um, save me. 
thankfully they got a medevac um, and they didn't just get me an ambulance. <clears throat> Otherwise I would not be here today. Um, and so they medevaced me out. And I guess once they, um, they got me over to the helicopter, when I left, they looked at my dad and said, your son's in his golden hour and he may not make it. So I think that freaked him out enough to, you know, rush to the hospital. I think he said he was driving like 120 or something on the highway trying to get there. So they, they medevaced me out and, um, you know, it's New Year's Eve. My friends are calling me, my phone's blowing up and the, the first aid responders in the medevac is like, whose phone is this? You know, <laughs> and all my friends are calling me to probably see where I'm at or you come into so-and-so's house. Um, my uncle was also a first responder for that township in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And so he actually greeted me there um, in the ER, which was nice. It, it provided, I think, a sense of comfort knowing that, you know, here's somebody that I know that, that's by me and, and is you know, keeping me safe. But it was also interesting by the time I got there, I started thinking about death in a different way. When I was in the first aid station, I, I was terrified. By the time I got there and saw my uncle and they're taking off my clothes or jabbing me with needles, I just started to kind of expand outside my body a little bit. And I remember thinking, you know, this is somebody that I consider family, right? They're blood. Um, but where I'm about to go, I can't take anybody with me. This is my own journey. And um, there's this kind of like feeling of acceptance of something is going to happen. And this is my own journey. Um, and mm -hmm there's nobody else I can take with me. And at that time, the nurses are jabbing me with needles, trying to get into my, my veins to tap me with IVs. I remember hearing the one nurse say like, um, yeah, I guess trigger warning. You know, it might get a little bit triggering for some folks, but um, yeah, they're, they're just kind of tapping me and saying, you know, I can't, I can't get, um, I can't get an IV in his uh, veins. His, his veins in his upper body are collapsing. And then I could hear another nurse say, like, I can't get a pulse on him. You know, his pulse is really low. And I remember they took out this huge needle and, and jabbed it in my femoral artery. I think that was the only vein that they could um, tap into. So then they got me to a sonogram and they said, you know, we need to figure out what's going on. You obviously like aren't doing well. And we think you have like internal bleeding. And so they did a sonogram on me. And they said, you know, this is the reason why you feel so sick. You have massive internal bleeding in your abdomen. You have blood filling your entire abdomen. Mm -hmm. We need to figure out where this is coming from and we need to do emergency ASAP. By that point, I wasn't afraid. I'm hearing all this and I'm hearing that I'm dying. And I'm just kind of sitting there going like, huh, this is interesting. <laughs> you know, it was mm -hmm. like I was kind of out of my body and I was tapping into all the, I was more concerned around the nurses and the doctors. I could feel all the anxiety that they were mm. feeling, needing to keep this like young, young kid alive. So they got me to the, the CAT scan machine and um, to try to figure out where, where, where the bleeding was coming from. And I'm in this, you know, the, the, the CAT scan machine and they're giving me all this instructions, Kyle, breathe in. And I'm just, I'm freezing. I have no blood circulating through me. It feels like I'm submerged in a tub of ice water and I'm falling asleep. I'm so cold and I just want to go to sleep. And so I'm drifting away, closing my eyes, shivering. And they're telling me, they're like, inhale, exhale. And they're, they're trying to coach me through all this stuff. And then the doctors over the intercom are just like, Kyle, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Stay with us. Stay with <laughs> us, Kyle. And all I'm thinking about going to sleep is like the most beautiful yeah. thing think about right now and I felt like I was on the other side of the room with them but I was also in my body and as they're telling me not to fall asleep and I'm, I am kind of drifting off 
all of a sudden the way I describe it is like, there's this like orb of light or this, this light that, that came up somewhere and a voice. And, and it wasn't an external mm. voice. It felt more of like an internal voice, but this voice said, um, you know, you're going home. Uh, you're going back to the stars where we all come from and this physical life's going to cease to exist. Um, you'll continue onward and that this is just a transition. Um, and the more that you struggle with the transition, the harder it's going to be. So the more that you can relax into this experience, the easier this transition is going to be for you. But you're going home. And I remember thinking, feeling all this ecstasy and this bliss going, we're going home. This is what we all wait for. And I remember just being like so blissed out and, and internally um and also freezing in so much pain but it was it was interesting because it was like the more i started going inward the more outward i was going um so it wasn't like just this total outer body experience it was like the deeper i was going inside it was like it was kind of helping me to propel outward a bit more they got me out of the cat scan and said you rupture your spleen you have massive internal bleeding we need to do surgery asap um they rushed me to the or and they're telling me they're going to uh, give me anesthesia. They're going to start counting backwards. <laughs> the last words I remember uh, hearing before I completely blacked out was, I think they were talking about shaving my chest so they could cut me open. And so the last things I heard before it all went black was, should we use an electric razor or a straight razor? <laughs> um, that was the last thing I heard. And then, um, yeah, so they, they did some... Um, they did surgery on me uh, as they were wheeling me back to the ICU afterwards. I remember they were just, they were wheeling me through the hallway and I took this huge breath and I shot up off. It was like my soul entered back into mm. my body. Um, and it was just for a split second. I like shot up. I started shaking, convulsing. And that split second I heard he's awake and he's cold. And then I passed out and then I woke up in the ICU with my family around me. Um, and so that was really kind of the start of, of this journey, um, that really changed my life in, in a lot of different ways. And, and one thing that I, um, say it's like, you know, it was like, I woke up with this map on my chest and it was like a map of like maybe how the world worked. And I have no idea where that came from. And it was like, my, my thinking started just changing, um, in, in, in a really kind of profound way. And I said, where, where did all this information come from? Um, so it just got me more curious. Um, and you know, it just left me on like, where the hell did I go? Cause I didn't have this traditional near death experience where, you know, you're, you're going down a tunnel of light, maybe you're meeting ancestors and then you feel like I'm making a decision to come back. It was like, all I know, it felt like I was going home. I was kind of accepting of things. And then all of a sudden I wake up in like, I see you and I'm like, what just happened? Like, where did I go? And I was really like, still co like cognizant of time. Like I remember waking up and going, what time is it? And they're like, Oh, it's nine 30. Mm. And I was like, Oh, all this stuff happened at like six 30. And I think like surgery happened around this time. Um, and I was like, well, I think there was a couple other things I said, yeah. is it still new year's Eve? And they said, yes. And I was like, did the ball drop? And they, said, <laughs> they said, no. And, I, and then I, I was like, well, what time is it then? Cause I thought it was like, you know, right. maybe the next day or something like that um yeah so yeah that that was like really the start i'll stop there see if you have any questions before i continue onward yeah well first off it's it's a fascinating story i'm i'm sorry to hear about the traumatic part of it but in some ways i'm excited for you to at such an early age to break the conditioning of of what everybody is given in some life you know and it seems to me 
it's traumatic experiences in life that shape us. And it's interesting, at such a young age that you were you were able to take that experience and and find a different direction. You know, it's 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 a pretty young man. You're 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 a young man at that age. Like you don't have a whole lot still of life to, or lived experience, right? Still trying to figure out who you are, right? Like at that age, a sophomore in high school, like all my peers are worried about like maybe partying, relationships, like yeah. you know, all those things that teenagers do. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell just happened? Um, what are we all doing here? And then I came back like having a pretty heavy existential crisis. So it was like, I rode this high for a few months, yeah. but then it got really dark. Um, and I hung out in the valleys um, and going like, you know, this is, I, and having no mentors. Um, and it was kind of interesting because I think it was in junior year of high school, we read a lot of uh, existential writings and I gravitated towards that. And I came across a paper that I wrote, I don't know, a number of years ago and it was dark. <laughs> it actually like, I was like, damn, I was depressed back then. I was like really depressed. Just talking about how meaningless everything was and no purpose. And it's like, geez, but yeah. that's, that's what I was feeling back then. It seems like a rite of passage to me in some ways. You know, when you read about different mythologies or, you know, people can read the Bible in this sort of way or any sort of texts, you know, even Star Wars, the hero's journey, whatever you want to use. But like, it seems to me when you come close to the face of death, be it in your own life or someone you really care about or a caretaker, you know, you get close to that fire, you get burned by those embers and that changes you forever. In fact, it, yeah. it fundamentally changes the way you model reality. Does that sound accurate? Totally. Totally. Yeah. My reality was completely shattered and restructured. Um, mm. There's a, a term that our, my other co-founder Joe Moore uh, used in a podcast a while ago, this ontological shock. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was like this just shock to my worldview, my belief system and not having any idea how to pick those pieces back up. And how do I like, you know, figure this out and not having mentors, um, which is really, really challenging. Yeah, it's, I'm not even sure anybody, you know, when you, you didn't have any mentors. I mean, how would your family even know how to react to that? I don't think most of them did, right? <laughs> like, because I mean, obviously the first line is physical safety. You're alive. Sure most other people aren't thinking about the psycho-spiritual aspect and you can't blame mm -hmm. anybody for that right because yeah. like we don't live in a culture where we value that we talk about it much um i remember i got in trouble so i hated school when i went back i just pretty much was like this is all fa like your factory producing kids all this yeah. stuff is like a bunch of bullshit. um and i just completely stopped doing all my work and somehow i aced everything um and uh <clears throat> I found I found a letter from a teacher. Uh, she emailed my mom and said, I don't know if you know much about like what Kyle's thinking, but he's had this near death experience that like really radically shifted his life. And I think you need to give him another near death experience because he's not doing like, you know, any of his work and, you know, this and that. And he has all this potential and he's just not applying himself, but also not hearing like my side of things of like. Mm -hmm. This is all, you know, like, uh, and to some degree, right? It's like the way the school system was kind of created. It, it was, you know, kind of, there was some kind of truth there. But I remember one time, so so I, I just, I really hated school um, back then. And um, I just felt like there was just much more life um, at that point. And why am I wasting it? Just like doing all this like bullshit that I'm never probably going to like, you know, use. Instead of like giving people real world experiences and other yeah. ways of like learning that are more practical. 
Um, and I, I got detention one time um, because I, I forget what happened. Uh, I was probably just goofing around. And the principal said, you know, so you had this experience. You should just be thankful you're alive. And I said, I am, I am thankful that I'm alive, but I'm like, I don't, under, I don't think you understand the psycho spiritual like crisis that I'm going through right now of what I went through. And it was like, she couldn't hear that. And again, and everybody's like, you know, thankful you're alive, but you know, there's also, what is that? How does that change somebody's personality and way of thinking? And again, you know, we're not a culture that's oriented towards death, thinking yeah. about it. And we're not a culture that like really, explores these kind of well what, what i would call like a transpersonal crisis or a spiritual emergence right like this is like foreign language for most of us and so we don't even think about how that's impacting somebody yeah you know you rubbed up against this taboo called death at an early age and in our in the western culture you know, just think of the word palliative care like the, mm -hmm. the etymology of paw means to cover something up like we are covering we'll put that in the shadows old people yeah. get over there we don't want to look at you guys I mean, you guys might die pretty soon we, we can't have that on our brains like you know like we we in the western culture it seems to me with my experience that death is something that we we don't want to even consider so to be at a mm -hmm. young age you know i could imagine adults would be like listen man you're not gonna be alive now let's, let's stop your complaining and get back to doing this thing that matters you're like i was going home man you guys have any idea i was about to go home to the stars and who, who did you like without some sort of spiritual framework man you lost yeah. man i get it yeah and then you know there's another part that i just hit like a number of years ago in, in yeah. um, an ayahuasca session of like being terrified that i was never going to see my friends and family ever again that was it i was going to mm. fall asleep and that was going to be completely it never to say goodbye never anything like that so um you know that's, that's like another layer of it and it wasn't until i ended up going to college i, I found this interesting program that you mentioned in the intro, um, Burlington College, and I was taking an eco-psychology class and I had a teacher um, named Michael Watson there. And uh, he also does uh, some shamanic uh, healing and, and stuff like that. And during the eco-psychology class, he said something and I was like, I gotta share my story with this guy. And so after class I said, hey, can I share my story with you? And so I shared my, my near death experience and then some of these really profound psychedelic experiences that I had that ultimately got me to Burlington College. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, if you lived in a traditional culture, the elders would have stepped in and taught you this new way of being and seeing in the world. Unfortunately, you don't live in that culture and you had to yeah. figure it out by yourself. And that was probably the first time I ever felt seen and heard by somebody. And I said, holy shit, somebody gets it. Somebody gets what it's like to go through something like that. And that there's cultures that could understand that was part of their cosmology, that these experiences are really transformative. And as you mentioned, they're kind of like an initiatory crisis yeah. for a lot of folks. And what's the framework? How do people come back from that? How do people then reintegrate into society? And they had, and some of those cultures had that, right? And you had the elders that would step in and say, you went through this. Now, here's how to, how to work through that. And that, you know, I just, yeah, I grew up in a place where maybe that wasn't accessible and didn't really know where to look. I was confused myself. I don't even know if I knew where to look at that time or what I needed, right? Um, it's interesting, you know, we, you spoke a little bit about time when you awoke from this incredible situation that happened and you were like, kind of like, I don't know what time is it? Was I gone for a day? Was I gone for a month? And we look at the cycles of, of 
psychedelics that have been in our country. But then we look back to indigenous cultures and we see the times in which they were used in ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And fast forward to, you know, 2023 on the cusp of 2024. And it's almost like you can see your shadow with what you're doing now with psychedelics today. On some level, you're probably seeing echoes of people having similar traumas. While it might not, it may not be someone, you know, going down the the mile Nile or whatever. You know, someone that may have been in Afghanistan and and totally. had their friend's head exploded in front of them, totally. or someone coming out of a divorce. Like tragedy is a big word that has yeah. a big umbrella that a lot of things are under. What? So you mentioned a few psychedelic experiences. Maybe we could touch on one of your first psychedelic experiences before we start getting into psychedelics today. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, it, it's the continuation of the story. Right. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think I was maybe 19, 20. Um, a friend of mine had some mushrooms. And I think I only had one experience beforehand, which was a little bit of a lower dose. Definitely wouldn't have prepped me for this. I think I had already had some experiences with cannabis at this point. But, um, you know, I was just still processing so much. Like, I, I, I took it in a way that I wanted to escape everything. Because mm-hmm. I was just like... What, what am I doing here? You know, cause there's a part of me that it was actually really upset that the doctor saved me. There is this part mm. that I was like, I was survivor's guilt. I was supposed to go. And then what am I doing here? So I, I was left with this huge question, like what yeah. the hell am I still doing here? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I wasn't in the, probably the greatest mindset. And, you know, we always talk about set and setting, you know, <laughs> important things about um, psychedelics. Um, and we ended up going into the woods. We went on a little hike. I think I ate around like two grams of cubensis. And all of a sudden, the world just started to melt away. I was looking at my body turning into pixels. I watched my friend puke his up. And I'm thinking, this is it. <laughs> We're dying, you know. Um, and, I, and I was having a really hard time just holding on, to, holding on to reality. And I was walking down this path. And I saw this rock. And I pointed at that rock and said, I need to die there. And this feeling started to come in. This cold started to creep in. And that cold reminds me of dying, obviously. And um, all of a sudden, it felt like death was at the, at the forefront. And I said, I know this feeling. This is death. Um, and so all of a sudden, the world got really scary. I couldn't, couldn't hold on to reality. The trees, all of nature started to have mouth and teeth. And it just ripped me apart. And the more I tried to hold on to it, yeah. the more it got scarier. And I remembered that thing when I was dying. So the more you struggle with this, the harder it's going to be. And so I completely let go and I let the world consume me. And I just ended up in this void of nothingness. I didn't know my name. I didn't know anything about myself. Um, and I didn't know what year it was. I didn't know what I did for a living. Um, it, and it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying mm-hmm. to be in a state like that. And I would say this was what we call bad trip, right? The world has teeth, destroys you. You enter into a void of nothingness and you don't know who you are. And it really terrified me. And then I ended up in this realm that felt like some sort of death bardo. And mm. I came, and I started to come in contact with some sort of entity or energy. Um, and I started to kind of have some communication with it and said, I feel like I've been here before. And this voice just said thousands of times. And I said, okay. 
this is interesting. If I feel like I've been here before, this reminds me of dying. I've been here thousands of times. I must be in some sort of death bardo. And so I asked it that, you know, um, and it said, yeah, more or less so. I said, okay, if I've been here thousands of times, I'm in some sort of death bardo, then this must be God, or this must be the thing that gave me all this information. So I asked it that question. And then it just replied, more or less so. And so, you know, I'm battling up against this trickster archetype. <laughs> you know, it's just not giving me any sort of answer. But having that experience helped me to recontextualize my near-death experience. Mm. It helped to provide some sort of visual that allowed me to process my near-death experience in a new light. And I remember coming back from that, and it was so healing. That whole trip then transformed into beauty and love, and it gave me purpose all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And it helped me to it helped provide answers that I was seeking for. And I remember coming back from that, scratching my head going, how could somebody ingest something that grows from the earth that could replicate death like that all over again? And if people could experience what it's like to die before dying, what kind of therapeutic potential could this have? So that got me intellectually curious. I said, what's going on here? What, you know, is there, any, is there any research in this stuff? So I started diving down a rabbit hole came across Rick Strassman's book, DMT, mm. Spirit Molecule. I didn't pick it up because it was related to psychedelics or um, anything like that. Um, I don't even think I knew what DMT was at that time. I picked it up because in the subtitle, it said something about research in non-ordinary states, like near-death experiences. And so that's what caught my attention. And so then I started reading his book. And I think it was in his book, he said, sometimes when people are having near-death experiences and they're getting anesthesia right at that late stage, sometimes it suppresses the visual aspect of that experience. And I was thinking I got anesthesia right when I was, was like really starting to take off. And maybe that's like what suppressed some of that, you know, that whole tunnel of light thing and this mm. and that. These are just hypotheses, right? Sure. Um, but it got me curious. And then after reading his book, I'm reading about DMT. And I said, holy shit, like my experience with psilocybin was on a par with dying. And if psilocybin is kind of like an orally active dose of DMT, what are these similarities here? This is fascinating, you know, like, so that just got me more intellectually curious. And I just started picking up all sorts of books. I came across the work of Stan Groff mm. um, after a, another really profound experience that left me rocked and kind of, it was another initiatory process, mm. um, kind of left me in a trip for like three to four months and I had to like swim my way out of it. And coming across Stan's work was uh, pivotal. Um, but that, that was the experience then got me really curious of like, I need to study this stuff because I need to know what's going on. So I found this really unique program um, at Burlington College. It was a transpersonal psychology program there. And so I started to, I, I enrolled. I felt like I found my life purpose. I came out here to Colorado when I was 21, thinking I was going to be a ski bum for the rest of my life. I was like, I'm going to work on the mountains. I'm going to you know do all this stuff. But on the drive back, I had this voice that kind of came over and said, snowboarding's a hobby. It's something that you like to do. Don't make a career out of it. You know, there's something else that you have a lot more to contribute and think about these experiences that you've had. And so on the drive back, I think that's when I found out about Burlington College and decided to check that out. And I liked Burlington a lot better than Boulder, actually. Um, so I made the decision to go there. But there, it was such a unique program that I was able to research psychedelics, write papers about it. I was introduced to Lenny and Elizabeth Gibson at Dream Shadow who were uh, students and colleagues of Stan Groff. They trained under them for holotropic breath work. They kind of took me under their wing. I, I I've been studying with them for yeah, well over a decade. Um, and uh, 
I was just so fortunate to find really great mentors all of a sudden. And like I said, my, my one teacher, Michael, it was like, that was the first time I felt heard and seen by somebody. Um, and so it was like, I was in this community where I was able to explore my experience in an intellectual way, but also in an experiential way, because it was very experientially oriented, going down to do breath work, doing like, you know, getting trained in Reiki and like um, doing shamanic intensives, going, doing all this like Jungian dream analysis. Mm. I was really focused on a lot of inner work too. So it was like, that was almost like my, my integration um, was going to a program where they were able to hold all that. And I was able to really then start to do my work. Um, and I was just so fortunate that I was able to just find a place like that um, to, to do some processing. And so um, Lenny and Elizabeth kept asking me if I ever met Joe Moore. I was like, no. And they said, well, you guys should really connect. You guys are both into psychedelics, breath work, and, uh, you know, snow sports. Like, I think he snowboards. Like, you guys should just connect. And I said, Okay. <laughs> So we called him, I, we, we had a call together and we kicked it, we had, yeah, we, we just kind of really kicked it off. Um, and that was really then the, the birth of Psychedelics Today. This was in, 2000, I think we originally connected in fall 2015. And then we started the project in um, uh, yeah, the spring of 2016. So I was already done with school. I just started grad school. I was working in the mental health field a bit. And when we connected, we just had this idea of wanting to create an archive um, from some of Lenny and Elizabeth's like talks and kind of talk about their work, the work of Stan Groff, breath work, the importance of that work in, in the psychedelic world. Um, and it just started off as a little passion project. We just wanted to chat about transpersonal psychology, breath work, and psychedelics. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a journey. Um, but it's interesting, yeah, just a series of events that kind of got me here. And I never thought I would... I would be doing this, you know, I also trained as a therapist and I've put my practice on pause and I'm not practicing right now um, because yeah, kind of psychedelics today has taken over, which has been fun and exciting. It is. I'm going to go back for just a moment, yeah. you know, thinking about what the hell am I doing here? Mm. Like holding that thought and investigating it for five years. Do you think that that may be a big part of the reason why that two grams hit you like 10 grams? You know what I mean? Like holding on to that idea, investigating that thought and just sitting with it, man, that seems like the hammer of intention, just wailing away at the neuroplasticity of your brain. Like I'm going to make a new path right here. As soon as I get the catalyst, you know, just hammering away. Yeah. Like, what the hell am I doing? What the hell am I doing? You start asking that question enough. You start coming up with some real interesting answers because you can superficially answer that question like, well, I'm here to have a kid. I'm here to work. Right. But that goes out the window after six months, a year. You know, you start thinking about those things. I think that, that kind of intention, that kind of serious thought on one question, meditating like that, that's what opens the doors to auditory yeah. illusions. It's like, whoa, okay, here's the answer. Here's the answer. No, this is the answer. But what, what do you think about holding on to something like that, whether it's through meditation or whether it's through trauma, holding on to a question and asking that and seeking an answer? What do you think that relationship is to, to, to a catalyst to psychedelics? Well, I, I mean, that's a really interesting thing. I really haven't thought about that. But, when, you know, when I do share that, I do say I think I was very primed. I was processing a lot. And we always come back to this notion that comes from Stan Groff is that um, – 
uh, you know, psychedelics are these non-specific amplifiers of mental or psychic processes. And so if I'm already processing all this stuff and then I take this substance that then is yeah. amplifying it to this point that it just like throws you into the water. Yeah. That makes so much sense, right? Like mm -hmm. this is something I've been thinking about daily. What's my purpose here? What am I doing here? And again, I think you're pointing to more of a philosophical, what are we doing here on this floating rock? How did life get here? How do we create the systems that we create? And to some degree, the systems that we've created have also boxed us in and have kept mm. us to suffer. And if we can think about things a little bit differently, could we be viewing life in a totally different way? But the the Cartesian waters that we swim in and all the <laughs> other waters that we swim in, we don't know that we're swimming in it, right? Mm, right. And so a lot of people have a hard time even thinking outside of that. It's, yeah, and it's again, it's like that... Um, that, uh, that, that little cartoon, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but two goldfish looking at each other, it's like, one saying, how's the water? And the other is mm -hmm. saying, what's water? We don't know that we're in these systems and how much they can actually then create suffering. And so I was dealing with that at a very young age of yeah. like seeing something outside and thinking I was going crazy. I'm like, how do people not yeah. see this stuff? And I, I'm not special, you know, like I just, I think have just been able to step outside of it for a second, but that drove me insane. Like yeah. I felt like I was crazy. I felt like I was so alienated from everybody else. I felt like I couldn't live a normal life because mm -hmm. I was just like, where did this information come from? Why am I thinking like this? Why am I thinking so abstractly all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. um, and that was really challenging. So yeah, I think since I was meditating on this stuff for a, a while, that got amplified to yeah. a degree where it just threw me into to the deep end um, that much uh, quicker. Yeah, it's, you know, it blows my mind and, and you can see on some level how people get lost or they can't find their way back because once you see something, you can't unsee it. It's like those, remember those pictures with like mm. all like the little, like if you squint your eyes and the 3D thing pops out yeah, at yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, I love those. Or, or, yeah, me too. Or, or like there's a picture of like an old woman and a young woman, depending on yeah. how you see it, like, but once you see one, you can see them both. Be like, oh my God, there's two there. But one person's like, it's only this. And a mm -hmm. lot of people, for whatever reason, have this binary look at life. But once you've taken a peek over that other side a little bit, you can't unsee that. And that can that can be a big problem. That can be distressed. That could be the root of PTSD. That could be divorce. That could be suicide. That could be a lot of things right there. But yeah. it, it sounds like you know, your relationship with seeing the unseen and making friends with it, you're making friends with the monster, if that makes sense, is like, yeah, that's a big part of it, right? It's a really great analogy because when I talk about like challenging psychedelic experiences, I talk about it as going down a hallway and there's so many doors that you can open. Yeah. And most of the time, maybe you get rainbows and bunny rabbits and, you know, all the all the great things. But one okay. time you're, you're going to open up a door with a monster. And you can't put that monster back in. It's free to roam yeah. the hallway. And yeah. so what do you do? Do you make friends with it? Or do you mm. constantly try to push it back in? Um, and and I get it, you know, as, as yeah. an age, like I get narrow-minded. And I think that just happens sure. as you age and life starts to happen to you again. And so, but I think that's why we need to also engage in whatever practice it is to help us get outside of it. Because life is really good at putting you back in the box, right? It's like, I could have all these yeah. really interesting insights and think about oh like all the ethereal stuff of what the world is and then you, you look and you go shit i gotta pay my student loan bills or i gotta do this or <laughs> right. you know, x y and z happen yeah. it's like okay no now i gotta get back in the box right yeah 
That's so. a good one too. It, it's slippery. Like you can, it's you can grab it for a minute, but then it yeah. slips out of your hands and you're back in life. You know, and and, and that's what it's for. I, I think it's, you know, another metaphor that I like to use is you, every now and then you can go to the mountaintop and look where you were, look where you're going, and look where you're at. But eventually, you got to come back down the mountain and start doing the work, right? Like, yeah. and that means slipping back into into this reality, slipping back into who you are into this time. And that that can be hard too. I mean, psychedelics no. can be used as an escape, right? A lot of people mm -hmm. use them. Let me just get out of here. Instead of using it as a way in which to see the world in a different perspective, hey, let me just escape from here. Like if we look at Huxley, you know, you, you can have Brave New World and have Soma where it's a disassociative, or you can have the island where you're sitting at a church with your mentor and looking, hey, what does this thing do? Yeah. No, and I was definitely there in my younger years, just using it as an escape. And it wasn't until right. I started doing breath work that I realized right. I was escaping and I wasn't actually processing all that trauma. And I needed to like actually come back to my body um, and process yeah. it in a totally different way. But yeah, I mean, it's easy to get cut off, cut, caught up with like all the, the visions and the beauty and, and the love. And, yeah. But the work is in the valleys, you know, and it's like, you know, when people and I think, you know, the mainstream media and then also, you know, we definitely focus at Psychedelics Today, like highlighting the healing potential, right? Sure. Because that's also a narrative that gets out there and people become interested in it. Yeah. But on the other side, we have to be really honest about the, the valleys, right? We only usually share the peaks, but what also happens in the valleys? And that's where a lot of the work actually happens. You know, it's like when you just go up to a mountain and you see this beautiful view and then, you know, nobody talks about, oh, like, yeah, you know, now I'm back down here. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, you're always talking about, wow, that view is amazing, right? Right. Um, but the work is here. The work is here. Yeah. I think the work in the valleys is vital. It's vital. <laughs> no pun no pun well, so, so how, how do you move? Like, so you and Joe are, are cataloging these speeches. You're talking to fascinating people. You've begun to grow this thing. At what point in time does it become, become a reality? We're like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to help people. We're going to other people. We're going to show them this trailer. What, what was that transition like? I think the reality hit when people started reaching out to us saying they listened to the show <laughs> and letting us know like, wow, that was a really awesome episode or like, you know, wow, that, that story, you know, changed. And that started hitting us going, whoa, people are actually listening to us. You know, people are actually like tuning into this. And I think that's what really kind of kept us going of like people giving us feedback and going like, wow, this was like a really profound episode or like that was, you know, you guys provide such a really valuable resource to the field. Um, and, you know, those are the things that like really kind of kept us going from a business perspective, you know, it was also like we started launching classes and people signing up for classes to just try to sustain the podcast of going like, you know, how do we just make a little bit of money to pay for hosting and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I was doing grad school at, the, at that time and I was living with my, my folks. And so my, my bills were pretty low. Um, so I was able to kind of focus on developing um, psychedelics today and focus on grad school. Um, but yeah, it really, I think, didn't start hitting us until, yeah, people started reaching out. And then when we started kind of, um, yeah, making, just having some income there to support the show through, through education, um, we're like, hmm, this is interesting. But at no point it was like, we want to create a psychedelic business. You know, it, was, it wasn't like, you know, now after Michael Paul, the pollinator mm. effect, right? It's like people wanting to come in and, and yeah. create businesses at, at no point we're like, we're going to create like, you know, this huge psychedelic business. It was just like, we just want to have fun, interview people. We want to have conversations with folks. And 
um, you know, and then we were just like, oh man, this is actually costing a lot of time and money. How do we just make a little bit of money to just pay for web hosting, you know, yeah. or pay for the podcast hosting? Yeah, it's it's an interesting move. And then, you know, Michael Pollan comes along and, and he he does so much for the world of psychedelics and, and, you know, how to change your mind. And on some level, you know, I think that he really got people to see it in a way that stripped away some of the, the taboo from it. Like you're a drug addict or you're going to tune in and drop out, man. Like, you know, and that's a pretty recent thing, at least for our generation where we got mm -hmm. to see this kind of taboo stripped away from it. We, you know, we grew up and this is your brain on drugs and here comes this yeah. boomer. That's like, yeah, you know what? It's pretty good. You know, it's, it was just dichotomy though. How yeah. did, did you see that affect change in, oh, in what you were yeah. doing? Yeah, by that point, what was that, 2018? Yeah. So we were already doing it for about two years. Mm -hmm. I, we started receiving so many emails like every day. And then I'd say around 80 to maybe 90% of those emails that came in right after How to Change Your Mind came out was started off with, hey, I just read Michael Pollan's book. And it just, <laughs> that's how it started. And yeah. what was really interesting was it was a lot of older folks saying yeah. like, I was around during the 60s. I put all this on hold. I read Michael Pollan's book. And now I'm interested in exploring it again. Um, you know, he is a very prolific writer and he has a huge audience. And for him to come out and share his experiences, because it's scary to talk about, right? Yeah, we're still sure. dealing with like taboo and stigma. And we're talking also about illegal substances. And so for somebody with that statue, like just being able to come out and talk about um, his experiences almost, I don't know, might've made people from that era feel a little bit safer of exploring it going, Hmm, what's going on here. Um, so yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah. It definitely had a huge impact in, in a way. Yeah. It's so we've, we've spoken a little bit about the medical container and I want to talk more about that, but I'm gonna take a quick little side trail over here. When we talk about Michael Pollan and, and some of the older individuals who may have been around in the sixties, isn't it interesting that such a large generation of us, and I mean like the human condition, like so many of us, this big generation finds themselves at the next transition, whether it's a mortality experience, whether it's going home or whether it's coming to the conclusion that you have a lot of unrealized dreams that are never mm -hmm. going to happen. These are all giant things to bump up against. And in my lived experience and some of the people with I've spoken to, that seems to be a lot of anxiety there. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of these people totally. are turning to this idea of like, okay, how do I get a handle on this fear? What can I do to come to grips with that? What do you think about the, this older group of people who are maybe coming to, to terms with death and the idea of using psychedelics to get a different perspective on it? I think it's important, right? Because as we were just talking about, like we're a very kind yeah. of like death adverse culture. Yep. And if people can... And, you know, I think some cultures viewed these substances as transitory tools to help people transition. And then I think what the, um, you know, the research at Hopkins and NYU and, and some of those other institutions looking at psilocybin for terminal illness and anxiety yeah. was really showing from a scientific perspective that people were able to have radical change, right? Like that, um, you know, that, that first article that came out by Hopkins that like 75% of people like, you know, their personality change, especially long term. Yeah, that's huge. Right. And so, you know, if we're a culture that doesn't think about our actions and, and death, 
to, to finally come to a point in your life where then it starts to become very real and then to start to meditate on it, but not having a container or tools to explore it. Like I always think, uh, I, I took this um, class in, in my undergrad called One Year to Live, um, and it was all about death and dying. And this is a quote that I think about and pretty often I always think like, yeah, death is kind of always on my shoulders. I'm, I'm always thinking about it. Um, and people are, you know, always ask me like, you know, are you afraid to die? There's one part that is like, no, you know, I, I know that something is going to continue on. And, you know, I felt, it felt safe. Other hand, there's a lot of cool shit I want to do. There's a <laughs> lot of cool stuff I want to experience. Yeah. And so I think I'm more afraid of time, not mm. having time to fully experience this experience that I'm down here embodying right now. Um, and, you know, I also know that I'm holding on and having expectations around things <laughs> I want to experience, but life is pretty cool. You know, like there's a lot of cool stuff you can experience here and, and I want to like try to experience it all. But um, in this class, there's a, um, there's a, uh, there's a saying uh, saying, how you live your life is how you prepare for death and how you prepare for death is how you live your life. And if we mm -hmm. don't have these rituals or these concepts of how we're approaching this, like how are we living our lives? And I think that has a huge impact just on the human species, right? Yeah. Like if, if we're just like a toss away culture, don't worry, I'm just going to toss it away. What does that say to the next generations that come in, right? We're just going to continue to pollute waters. We're going to continue to destroy the, the ecosystem. It's going to have huge impacts. But if we can start to think about, you know, what, what does this mean to leave this world and leave it behind to a new, the, the, the younger generations, how do we treat all this? Um, and I don't, just don't think we think about that that quite often. Um, and maybe we do. Maybe some people do more than others. But I think as a generalization for the culture, we don't think about that at all. Um, and yeah, I think to be able, I, I liked, um, it was Pindar, the, the Greek poet Pindar, who talked mm -hmm. about some of his experience. I think one of the few people that wrote about his experience in Eleusis um, with the, mm. the Greek mystery rites, but he said it was dying before dying, right? Yeah. So what are, what's it like to practice that beforehand? And I mean, if you look at a lot of those like Eastern philosophies and, and meditation, right? Working through the bardos, working through these, these states, right? Like, and they're constantly trying to practice that before it actually ever comes. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like we're a culture of uninitiated peoples, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think it's it's important. Yeah, I'm just seeing this comment here by Tom. It's like ritual is so important to human development, <laughs> right? Like it is, yeah. it is, and, and yeah. we, we kind of lack it in our culture to some degree. Yeah, I, 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 I love what you said about you know I've heard that quote: "He who dies before he dies never dies." I guess mm -hmm. you could, he or she, you know, whatever, yeah. wherever you want to go with, but like. You know, it, it seems to me like if one, one thing I've found to be very helpful in my life is to not look at yourself as an individual, but part of the species, like you're part of a whole. And like, this, yeah. oh, like you can look at your father, and be like, that's the old version of me. And my son is the younger version of me. Okay, what is my responsibility here? Or even the, your elders, you know, this idea of you respect your elders and just talking to people who are in palliative care or who know they're going to die, but have made peace with it. Or you can just read a biography and any biography you read is like no one ever says, I wish I would have worked in the office more. I wish I would have put, I wish right. I would have made way more money. No one ever yeah. says that. But what they do say is, I wish I would have traveled more. I wish I'd been a better husband. I wish I'd been a better brother. I wish I'd been a better son. You know, I wish I would have been a better person. I wish I would experience life more. 
Mm-hmm. And like that, just reading that biography or hearing that sentence from me or someone that's your elder, that can fundamentally shift your life. Because if that's what someone at the age of 80 is saying, why doesn't a person at the age of 50 start doing it? And if a person yeah. at the age starts 50 doing it, maybe my kid sees that and is like, yeah, dude, I'm never going to work for a multinational corporation, at least not until they change their identification of what a worker is. Or you know, I'm not going to be a wage slave. That's crazy. Right, I'm going to give up my whole life for that. And you know, we've been on a long pathway where we decided that that's what you do. This is life. You just come in here and you work here and then that's it. You know, Maybe as a species, we're beginning to, to – transition into from an adolescent to an adult like we're finally getting to a point where we're going to make the decisions that we have a better life and i think psychedelics are a giant part of mm-hmm. that because they allow you to sneak up on this other perception of like like the question you asked as a young man what the hell am i doing here like that's a species specific question i think yeah. and if we began yeah. having that conversation you know just young guys listening to you young women or young men listening to that story provides them with enough catalyst to be like, yeah, what the hell am I doing here? And that's enough sometimes. Now, what what do you think as, as an individual, as a species, looking at it from a species-specific area? Uh, like how we kind of, uh, can you say, repeat that question again? Yeah, like how- yeah. How, how, what do you think about the opinion of seeing ourselves as part of a whole? You know, and you can look to oh, the yeah, future yeah. and you can look to the past right in your own life. I think it's so important. And I think, think that we maybe haven't been doing that very often. And I mean, I always come back to, you know, there's two sayings, there's that old Native American proverb, and I don't see multiple things, maybe it's not true, maybe it's true. But it's, you know, we're borrowing the earth and the land from the younger generation, right? Because our actions are affecting them. And what we're doing is, yeah, we're we're, we're borrowing it. And then I always think about Bucky Fuller, right? We're Mm. living here on spaceship Earth. You know, we are on this huge spaceship floating through space and time and we're on it. We're in it together. Um, And we have to we kind of have to think about what are we doing here? You know, like, you know, are are, is the human like species supposed to help stored the Earth? Right. Help to like keep it going in a way. Or are we this like really interesting species that's supposed to evolve and merge with technology and, you know, extract everything from the earth. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't have those answers, but I think there are things that we should be thinking about, right? Like how, yeah. how do, how do we relate to AI? How do we relate to machines and, you know, technology as it advances? And, you know, there's, there's the little bit of me that is like the romantic in it and go, we're supposed to be stewards. Let's all go back to the earth and this and that. <laughs> but at the same time, like quality of life, you know, I don't think any of us could really, you know, like go back that way. I think the only thing that will make us go back that way is like huge disasters that force us to go back in there. But, you know, and then maybe, you know, there's those other ideas of maybe we are supposed to be traveling through the cosmos and maybe we do need to merge with this technology and invent and create, you know? So it's like, I don't know. And this, this is all stuff I've explored in, in my trips and in yeah. my breathwork experiences. And again, I don't have the answer. I think, I don't know if we'll ever have the answer, but I think it's important to just ask the questions because it helps us to like, I think, just show up differently. If, and then if we're not answer, if we're not even asking those questions, then we're just kind of going through life pretty blind um, and just kind of going with the motions, which to some degree, you know, I, I always like to look at nature for examples. It's yeah. like bees, for example, you need all those certain bees from the drone bees to the yeah. worker bees to this and that. Um, and sometimes, yeah, we just need people to, 
you know, just show up and, and do the work. And, you know, you need other people that are like the visionaries. And so we need a diverse ecosystem as well. And yeah. we need people to fill those roles. But I think we, as a species, I think we do need to think about the world in which we have it and how we treat it and our relationship to it. Um, Cause I think our relationship to it is that it's all dead matter and I can do whatever I want to do to it mm. versus this is something that we're in relationship with and we have to think that we're a part of it. We're not separate of it. Um, and I think that's like kind of what the Cartesian paradigm that we've been living in is we've split mind and body and man and nature, you know, human and nature. And that's something that maybe it's, we have control over it and versus it being a, a relationship. Um, there's a, a quote that um, I was watching this snowboarding documentary when I was like 18, they're all going out to Alaska and uh, they're like, if you're not afraid to be out here or you're not nervous to be out here, you shouldn't be out here. Mm. Um, and they're saying the mountains are alive. They're constantly changing. And, you know, my naive mind back then was like, oh, no way. <laughs> um, but, you know, once you start to immerse, like immerse yourself in nature, you start to really ask that question, like, who's really in charge here? You know, um, nature sometimes has its own sort of intelligence and just kind of doing what it does. Um, and, you know, especially for those in the psychedelic world and you've maybe drank ayahuasca and stuff like that, that might come up for you. You know, who's actually in charge here? Are the plants in charge? Like who's who's guiding this whole thing? Um, I don't know. They're fun questions to entertain and, and explore. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's fascinating to think about on that on that same topic of expanding and contracting and you think of this expanding cartesian model and how for the last hundred years we've used mechanistic metaphors to describe nature and how weird that is like what we're we gonna that's not a machine you know but like hey what is it if i call this a machine like what does that mean the way i see the world and on some levels i i think that you know maybe maybe we couldn't fix the world until now Maybe we didn't have the tools. Yeah. When I start looking at language, and we can we'll get into some of these ideas with with what you're doing with Vital and some of the pathways you're providing for the next generation. But when you look at language as a living language, and all of a sudden we're beginning to understand, wow, there's texture to emotions, there's texture to language. Like we didn't know all that 50 years ago. What does it mean to have a depth of knowledge? What does it mean when you see patterns in people, but those patterns have textures? Like, holy cow, like. Okay, now we can begin to fundamentally communicate meaning to each other. Before everyone's side monologuing and listen right. to my soliloquy over here. I am going to put a flag on this mountain. It's mine. You know, like we had these incredible ways of acting out because we didn't know any better. In some ways, totally. that I think that allows us to forgive a little bit and be like, okay, we went way too far down that road. Let's pull it back, expanding and contracting. And now all of a sudden we find ourselves here coming up on 2024 where there have been some states that have given the nod to psychedelics. And you have put together an incredible st static that I was going through. So maybe we can check out some of these numbers about, you know, the, the emerging psychedelic workforce and some of these classes or, you know, is there like, yeah. let me just, let, let's introduce them here. I mean, I have a couple printed up, but is there any, anyone you want to touch on first or how do you want to start on that? Yeah. And I guess we'll just kind of, uh, we'll make a nod to uh, the workforce and yeah, also kind of, I just want to make a comment. Yeah, so, you know, anything, we're, we're, we're critiquing maybe this Cartesian model and, 
to some degree, it's like we needed it. To, I wouldn't be here without it. We wouldn't be doing this. It was necessary. It, right? it was necessary. And so it's necessary. Yeah. And it's just part of our, our human evolution. And But, you know, we also have to yeah question maybe where we're going. And I think that's where history is really yep. fascinating to kind of learn and adapt and evolve and, and see where we're going. But I mean, I'm thankful that um, Newton Descartes has, has shaped our physics and our sciences and all that stuff. Um, but yeah. And then also what are the limitations of it? And I think that's just like where it comes into play. Like where are some of the limitations and how do we continue to, to evolve? Um, but yes, you, you mentioned this, this, uh, this, uh, workforce and this is, uh, we, we put out a, a document, an article, kind of a little research thing at psychedelics yeah. today called the emerging psychedelic workforce. And we, um, sent a, a kind of survey out to, I think it was around a hundred and 130 students. Um, from our vital program. And um, for those that are listening, I guess we haven't really mentioned yeah. vital. We've made some yeah. nods to it. But yeah. vital is our uh, 12-month uh, certificate program at, at Psychedelics Today. And um, really trying to train people in harm reduction, risk reduction, integration, um, the, the basics of like ethical space holding um, and, and what does that mean? And so, yeah, we, we sent out this survey to just kind of get an idea of like, you know, there's all these graduates that just came through our program. So obviously it's a select audience, but we're just trying to get some sort of uh, number and an idea right. around who's entering into the workforce here and that the workforce isn't just in the medical model and, um, you know, the, the psychotherapy. You know, if you asked me maybe even five years ago how to get involved in the field, I probably would have told you go get a clinical psychology degree, a counseling degree, some sort of research degree, because that's where it's where it's going to be. Um, but, you know, there's so many different, like, um, you know, ways that people can get involved now. And even just as a, a psychedelic business owner, um, you know, I'm thinking about people like, you know, graphic artists that are psychedelically literate and competent, accountants, uh, lawyers, like, you know, copywriters, like everybody that has a skill, but being able to develop and I like to say with Vital, we're trying to help train people develop psychedelic literacy and competency mm. that, so that they can go back to their communities in whatever kind of way that they're showing up in their communities to then be a resource, whether you're an advocate, an educator, your business owner, you're a therapist, you're in the medical profession, you're working with clients, um, you know, to develop that literacy is going to be important as the field really starts to, to grow because there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of nuance that really comes uh, with this, this type of work. And we do, we, we need a lot of educated and literate and competent people out there to help shift that narrative, right? Because the main thing that this field is really bumping up against, which for those that are listening and you, you might be in the psychedelic world, we're also in a little bit of a bubble. Maybe it feels mm. like, you know, everybody's on board with it. But, you know, you also have to think the algorithms do really well. I don't know how many weird microdosing um, supplement things I keep getting promoted on Instagram. I'm like, how are you getting away <laughs> with this? You know, my whole feed is like psychedelics. Yeah. Like, Everybody's into psychedelics. Yeah. And, you know, the algorithms make you feel really like you're in a bubble sometimes. Um, but yeah, and so some of the the, the survey uh, data that, that we released was um, that uh, people are really wanting to work with a lot of different marginalized groups. So around 81.4% uh, of people plan to or are currently working with marginalized groups. And so I think that really gives a nod that this work, people want to help folks, right? We want to help right. to better our communities um, and, and help to get access for these medicines or other techniques and modalities 
that um, provide professional and, and personal development. Um, around 36% um, identified as non-white. So just talking about this growing uh, ethnic diversity, which is important. You know, I think that number is a little low. And, you know, if we look at research, you know, it's even probably lower than that because of all mm -hmm. the challenges. And so that's definitely an area where, you know, that the field really needs to kind of progress and, and help out with. Um, and then I found this, this to be really interesting. Around 50.4% of people um, might want to work in um, fields beyond facilitation and therapy. And so, like I mentioned, if you asked me like five years ago, I would have said to become a facilitator or do therapy, go get your counseling uh, degree. But over half of our students mentioned that, you know, they want to maybe work in media, academia, mm. biotech, cultivation, marketing, finance. Like, you know, there's going to be like a huge uh, sector of, of uh, places where people can start to go if the, the industry continues to, to evolve and, and grow. And then um, people uh, are also in, might be incorporating it into their existing career. So again, if becoming a little bit more psychedelic literate, like maybe you have a skill, you have a niche already. Um, and I always say, like when people are, are asking, how do I get involved? It's like, what's your, what do you want to offer to the world? What is your skill? What's your, like your unique offering? And then you can add psychedelics on top of that, right? So not needing to do yeah. a full career switch. Like we have a student that has, and I guess a little bit maybe of the bias of the survey, of um, you know, people going beyond facilitation is a lot of training programs out there are just specific to therapists and clinicians. And we made um, a decision to make it more inclusive because watching uh, states and local ordinances shift policy. So we know, you know, how many how many local ordinances have decriminalized plant medicine? How many people out there are doing their own community healing? It's really important to get people trained up at, on risk reduction, harm reduction, and integration so that they can help to be a resource in, in their community. And so, and then we looked at like Oregon and Colorado, and as they're starting to move for a license kind of track without any sort of, um, you know, professional license, like in Oregon, if you want to become a facilitator, you need to take a training program, but you don't need a clinical license to get involved. And so, you know, the field will get a little bit more diverse on who can come in. And so, vital um our, our our program we have been a little bit more inclusive um which i think yeah. is is important as the field grows and, and evolves and also i think helps with accessibility um uh you know because paying somebody that's that's licensed and two people for some of this stuff can get really expensive and, and that is the question how do we make psychedelics accessible um and i think that's where having a diverse ecosystem um, will play a role in that, where you will have a medical model, you'll have the therapy track for people that really need it. You'll have yeah. a community model where people are kind of taking into their own hands. And to be honest, most people are already doing that, right? If we're really yeah. honest, of course, um, you'll have a religious and maybe spiritual um, use case where, you know, churches and stuff kind of spring up, which you, again, you're already seeing that. And then I thought this was the most interesting um, thing, and maybe also not interesting, because it is maybe within the psychedelic ethos. But Making money isn't the goal uh, for most of the people that, that did this. So 98.3% of the respondents indicated that making money is not their primary motivation for, for entering into the field. Um, and I find that to be really interesting, right? Because this is a field that people get, it feels like a calling for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. People just want to help. 
Um, and, you know, there are those folks that see the hype and, and want to get on the train and um, think it's like cannabis 2.0 to make a bunch of money really quick. But I think for those that are really in it, understand it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, and, you know, this is, this is definitely a different field uh, to some degree. Yeah, I like that. I, I think that you know, it seems that the first the first car on the train is this medical container, but I do see maybe the next car being like an optimization car, you know, because I think I see athletes beginning to find ways to, to, you know, pregame or think about things, you know, on, on, on different doses, you can train at different levels and, you know, um, just a different perspective shift you can get from, you know, the, there's been tons of stuff. Well, I don't know about tons, but I recently read a study a while back where they brought people in that couldn't solve a, a work problem for a year and they gave them a small dose and they were able to figure out a different solution or see things different. Education is yeah. going to play a part in there. But yeah, it's, it's interesting how even with cannabis, you know, I'll say with cannabis now, it seems like the the method of monetizing cannabis and monetizing psychedelics outside of a medical model is almost non-existent. You know, it, it's very difficult to, to take a company public and monetize it in a, some sort of way. Do you, do you see, some people say that, that psychedelics may be like cannabis and that there's this big rush and then it kind of falls off. What do you think is, is, is there some patterns that we should look for from cannabis Is cannabis, maybe like the older brother of a model or is, is psychedelics its own thing or are they combined or what's your take on the, on the two industries? Yeah. You know, I'm not an expert in the cannabis world. Um, but, um, you know, I think there are a lot of folks that are saying, how can we learn from cannabis? Right. Um, my, also thing is like for a lot of people, cannabis, people like to recreate with it, right? It's a daily thing to do. You're not taking psychedelics every day, you know, besides the possible, the microdosing like mm. regimens that people do, like that could be a daily type of product that people might right. do. And then they do it for like a few months and then they fall off versus cannabis. I mean, you see people daily habits multiple times a day, right? Um, and it's more of a consumer product where people are engaging with it every day to some degree. Um, whereas psychedelics, I mean, it might only be every once in a while, you know? Um, and so, and when we think about the accessibility piece, especially when it comes to like therapy and, you know, we brought this up, how much is a therapy session going to cost for folks, right? Like, yeah. you know, I think the estimate for like an MDMA therapy trial for PTSD or yeah, uh, session for PTSD could be anywhere between maybe the low end 12, 15 to 30 plus thousand dollars, um, depending who you're paying, how long the sessions are and stuff like that. And so, you know, is that going to be, you know, financially accessible for most folks? Mm -hmm. And the answer is probably no. So to some degree, I think there probably are lessons to learn from cannabis right. because it is, you know, a mind kind of altering substance and it's like, you know, people are rushing. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, but it's a totally different thing. It's a totally different substance, even though cannabis can be very psychedelic for sure. a lot of folks, right. And people can use it with that intention and, and, and develop a relationship with that plant. But yeah, psychedelics are just, I think like a totally different thing. And you know, what's really interesting is, um, and I come back to this, there's a, a woman that we had on the podcast number years ago. We chatted a little bit offline. I wanted to ask her this during the recording, but we just didn't have time getting to it. 
the people that she studied with, I think in Peru, I think she was in Peru, we were talking about ayahuasca and how that culture um, and, and those peoples actually didn't drink ayahuasca all the time. And I asked, well, why is that? And she said, well, in, 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 that, um, in that village, if you drank ayahuasca, you would open these doors and, you know, now you're starting to get into like more transpersonal yeah, ideas, sure. open the doors. And then the community also needs to be in agreement that you're going to be letting those energies in. Right. Um, and then, so like, what energies are we kind of letting in into that? And, you know, a lot of people are, you know, doing this all the time. And to some degree we're, we're letting that energy in a lot. Um, yeah. and so, you know, it's a different cosmology, but it also gets you thinking like, you know, what are we doing when we're entering into these, these, uh, states? Um, I mean, I've had some really interesting experiences where, you know, something comes up and then it starts to unfold, you know, what the hell what, what just happened there? Yeah. It was really weird. Um, but yeah, it's, and I think it's just a, a it's going to be a totally different, um, totally different thing. And I think the folks that, I've chatted with who are in the biotech world, either a didn't have much experience with it and they're mm -hmm. viewing it as like cannabis 2.0 where they mm -hmm. can make some of yeah. those moves. I think where you could get into interesting stuff. And I think where biotech is really interesting is that once you start making some of these new novel compounds of like maybe shorter duration mm. um, and maybe um, like, just having better efficacy and stuff like that. I do find that to be interesting. I know a lot of people don't always agree with stuff um, in, in the biotech world, but from a clinical perspective, like when I was doing ketamine therapy with clients, like doing a two hour session from a clinical perspective, it was a lot cheaper for clients than say like a six to eight hour session, right? And so being able to develop new molecules that could be just as effective and shorter and thinking about resources, um, you know, I think there, we, we, we should, we should think about that also not toss it completely out, um, being a purist and, and a romantic, which I definitely am at times, you know, yeah. but you also have to counter it with reality and, and, uh, yeah, stuff like that. So, you know, there's an interesting parallel too. I was talking to an old, uh, old school grower friend of mine from California that used to grow a ton of weed back cannabis back before you know, it got into the dispensaries or even when it got into the dispensaries, but before there became this incredible need for testing and, you know, this incredible need for sterilization. And, you know, on some level, you could say that these things were implemented to kind of shut down the industry. And, and whether it was, a, a you know, whether it was something done on purpose or whether it was done in the name of safety, either way, it started putting up these giant restrictions for getting cannabis to market. And it seems to, on some level, that could be an echo that happens in the psychedelic community. Like, you know, I, I've spoken to lots of people that have ketamine clinics and they have some of the best intentions in the world. And, but dude, they're making a lot of money. I can't imagine them paying a whole lot more than lip service to like, yeah, this should totally be a lot freer, you know, or yeah, yeah. we should totally give someone's mushroom for like 10 bucks. Like on some level, they can say that all they want, but like, they definitely don't want to see their industry crash like that. And, totally. And, yeah. You know, I mean, like, that's how you make your living, right? It's threatening <laughs> to your identity and yeah. to, you know, and I have to examine that myself. Like I went down the therapy route thinking this should be in, in, in therapy. Sure. And, you sh and I've always had that idea of like, it needs to be done in a certain container and then interacting with more people that are doing more kind of like community experiential stuff and hearing 
the benefit that they get out of it. I have to pull back on my own bias and be like, oh yeah, like I just want to be able to be able to offer this and, and have sure. a career in it. And then just being pulling back and being honest and like, okay, where's my intentions here? But yeah, you know, people, you know, might be threatened that if it leaks outside the medical model, then their careers are at risk and, you know, stuff like that. And also harms, right? But sure. I mean, harms happen in therapy and the medical establishment all the time. So I think it's just part of human, human nature. I do too. I, and here's one that kind of the, 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 I've been thinking about lately and thanks for being totally honest there. Like, I think that too, like, I want to be, I want to be talking to all the cool people and psychedelics. I got this podcast. Me too. I wanted to, I wanted to be awesome, but I have that same thought sometimes. And another thought that I think we may share is that a lot of the people with whom we enjoy our conversations with have found themselves by themselves at a younger age, experimenting with this thing. even like, Holy cow, this, this fundamentally changed the way I, I figured it out. And on some level, we came to that realization for ourselves. Like we were our best integration coach. We were the best person to see this thing. And like mm -hmm. may, maybe it's not for everybody. Maybe no, it's, for, it's just for that, a few people that want to do it. And, and it's interesting to go down that road too, right? Well, and it's interesting too. Like, yeah, question where is your own entry point in? Yeah. And especially as somebody that's trained more in the traditional world, I mean, I guess not traditional world, but you know, I went down sure. the transpersonal route and all that stuff, but you know, going down traditional therapy route and thinking like, should this be in the, the th only in the therapy world and going, where was my entry point? I ate mushrooms out with my friends in the woods yeah. and I had a spiritual experience and that was really interesting. Um, and you know, you, you bring up a good point, right? This isn't going to be for everybody. Um, and some, pe some people should never touch these substances. Mm. Um, I think there is that danger of the narrative of if we just dose the water, everybody has psychedelics will like, you know, be mm. healed. And, you know, we, we also have to be very careful about that. Um, right. You know, I think there's some romanticism around some of that. And I think <clears throat> romanticizing say shamanic traditions, right? there's a lot of jealousy and hate that happens in those communities. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's like, if these are folks that are in healing and doing this and there's still human issues, interpersonal relationships that come up, that means we're not all enlightened. Right. We, we right. still deal with the human element of relationships and sloppiness and, and all this stuff. Um, but I uh, forget where I was going. I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent, but um, yeah. Oh yeah. Just like being honest, like where was our entry point? This isn't going to be for everybody. Um, and what are some of the other things outside the medical that could be really helpful? Like when we were chatting with uh, Dr. Stan Groff um, on the podcast, you know, I think I asked him like, you know, what do you see the future of psychedelics? Yeah. And he's like, you know, hopefully you can uh, take some LSD and go out on a hike, you know? And I think <laughs> he, awesome. he, he mentioned it to our teacher, like our teacher, Lemmy, I think had a conversation with him and said, you know, Stan, isn't this great? Like all the, um, the research is coming back and this and that. And Stan said, you know, a lot of it's been done, you know, and if you look at a lot of the research, a lot of it, I mean, not up to today's standards, right? Like yeah. the standards are, are, are very different. And so I get that critique that we weren't doing double blind research and it was way more experiential and some of the stuff that they were doing back then definitely would not fly, <laughs> maybe pass like an ethics board. But, you know, his, his comment was like, you know, we, we've done a lot of this stuff before, but the real potential of these substances in, is in creativity and art. Um, and when we think about what is our purpose here and the, the, the issues that we're going to be battling up against, we need a lot of creativity. 
you know, like we're definitely going to need a lot of creative problem solving. Like just to even think about, you know, uh, jobs yeah. being taken away by AI. What are we yeah. going to do when, you know, people have a lot of free time and no income? Um, I don't know if that will happen, but, you know, I know that is part of the narrative that people sure. are like getting concerned about. Um, and, you know, as AI advances, could there be jobs that are taken away? To Bucky Fuller's comment, we're here to make small local adjustments to the machine. So to some degree, we'll probably be, be serving that. Um, but, you know, what happens? I mean, we, we need to be on top of it. We need to start kind of um, having a lot of creative problem solving and thinking. Yeah, I, I'm all for a, a group of creative psychonauts making their part of the spaceship more awesome. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> It's I don't know. It's, it's a complex, it's very complex. It and, you know, to your comment around like standardization and regulation, like, yeah. you know, how many, and especially with like more powdered substances, you know, I know there's a lot of contamination that happens in cannabis, but like when you're dealing with then all of a sudden powders, like maybe DMT, um, mm. MDMA and, or say acid, um, you mm. know, you want to know what you're getting. You want to know your dose, yep. you want to know that you're getting, um, you know, a safe supply because, you know, the drug world is so contaminated and adulterated right now. It's kind of scary. Um, and so to some degree, having a little bit of that regulation and legalization framework, I think is in the best mind of public safety to some degree of like knowing what you're getting, knowing that you're buying a, a tab of LSD and not you know, a tab of like say two, five IN bomb, and then having some sort of issue come up, right. Um, or buying something that's contaminated with fentanyl. Mm. Um, and that's like, you know, kind of the scary stuff. And so to some degree, you know, I think the black market will always exist, right. The black market sure. thrives in cannabis. It's, you know, a lot cheaper. Maybe you can get some like really niche kind of plants from, you know, you're, you're the grower down the street or something like that, that you can't get in the store. Um, and maybe that will happen with, with mushrooms, right? Like some guys experimenting with some interesting strain yeah. and get that. But um, you know, I think having some sort of legal framework where people can get this as a safe supply, because the reality is people are going to do it. You know, yep. people are going to do it. And if we're not doing testing or not having a safe supply, I think it actually puts a little bit more danger to the public. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes I zook out on like mechanism of action. And I, I really like to follow some people that are talking about like what's happening. This is the 5H2A. And we have this, you know, this other thing happening over here. But the, the, the deeper you go down that rabbit hole, it seems to me like the less we know. Like we spent millions of dollars. Okay, well, what's happening here? Well, the long story is we have no clue. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's fascinating to me to try and comprehend the mechanism of action. Like there's just so many variables. Like I feel like we'll never get our arms around it, but it is a way to move money through the system. What's your totally. take on mechanism of action? That's funny because there's uh, some quotes I've been reading over the past few weeks um, on this. And this is just one perspective of, of Stan Groff. Um, so I guess like, first of all, I think neuroscience is also a very young field. And I have neuroscientists that are colleagues and they'll also agree to that. And I think if you talk to any good neuroscientist that is really sure. being critical of their own field, they'll tell you it's still still early. And, you know, we don't always know things, right? It's like, just because we know X, Y, and Z doesn't mean that that's true all the time, right? right? Um, so 
I think, you know, it's still a, a young field and we're still working off of different hypotheses and, you know, that will continue to, to grow and evolve. Um, but I, I come back to something Stan says, and maybe this is more of a philosophical approach than a scientific approach, but Stan uh, has this quote, um, I think, I think I grabbed it from his interview uh, with Tim Ferriss, but uh, my other colleague, uh, Christine Calvert, who I'm teaching a, a Groff course with, she has a quote from somewhere else, but the quote was something along the lines of, when we were doing LSD research back in Prague in the 50s, uh, in those early days, I realized we weren't doing psychopharmacology because if you start to do pharmacology, you know that if you give you know, this drug, X drug to person, they might have X effect. So, you know, if we give somebody a tranquilizer, we know that they're going to fall asleep. If we give them, you know, this X, Y, and Z is going to happen. He's like, but with LSD, we realized that there's no way of understanding what could happen to somebody. And then you could give somebody the same dose, the same set and setting, yep. the same everything, and you're going to get a totally different experience. Um, and so Stan has this uh, thing that says, I realized people weren't having quote unquote LSD experiences. They're having an experience of psyche. And then another quote, he said, I, we realized we weren't doing pharmacology and people weren't having LSD experiences. They were having experiences of themselves. And so wow, coming, co coming back to this notion that these are all vehicles, whether you're taking mm. a psychedelic, you're doing breath work, you're doing some sort of uh, sensory deprivation, you're doing something that maybe involves extreme pain, right? Some rites of passages where they're doing yeah. really extreme stuff. You're getting to a state of consciousness where I, I just use psyche as a term. You're getting in touch with psyche. You can call it whatever you want, whatever, right. like, you know however you relate to that, but you're touching to a core experience. The psychedelic mm. might have a lot of flavors to it on the outside, right? But you're touching into a core experience of yourself, of psyche, of your spirit, your soul, of, you know, the collective unconscious, whatever, however you want to identify with that. And um, Stan also has this follow-up quote and um, said something along the lines, like, if I had any disbeliefs about this notion, they would have all have been dispelled by our observations from holotropic breath work meaning that they were witnessing people have kind of similar experiences um to on their during their breathwork experiences than on their psychedelic experiences and how is that possible right and if we go back to this notion of this amplifier this amplification process right we're, we're, we're taking our inner our inner worlds and then making it bigger we're, we're amplifying it and you know traditions like knew how to explore this in all di again different ways they're just different vehicles to get there and so i come from kind of a little bit of that bias and, and philosophical background where these are amplification of ourself um and how do we know what we're going to experience right mm -hmm. um we have no idea what's going to unfold when you take a psychedelic and you know that's a little nerve-wracking for a lot of folks you know especially if you're trying to do something a little bit more scientific right yeah. and you're trying to hopefully get some sort of okay we know that this is going to happen if we give x y and z sometimes that's like completely you know out out the window um you know people are going to experience something within themselves though i think that that's key like that is definitely like 
you know, you give somebody LSD or, or psychedelics, sometimes you get the non-responders, right? People don't, yeah. um, you don't always respond. But for the most part, people will have an experience of their inner world. Um, and then I, Stan kind of even went back a little bit in this Tim Ferriss episodes, talking about maybe even critiquing that idea of the non-specific amplifier of mental or psychic processes. Because then what happens when you have an experience with ayahuasca and you have the spirit inside of there, right? What is that, you know? Uh, is that psyche or uh, psychic material or is that something external coming in? And so I think he actually started to kind of critique that a little bit more um, having some experiences with, with ayahuasca or maybe hearing people have experiences with ayahuasca. And, you know, where does that serpent come from, right? Is that an external thing that's being influenced? Or you hear these folks on, on mushrooms are like, the mushrooms told me, right? Mm -hmm. um, Terrence McKenna said he was talking to uh, Albert Hoffman and asking him, you know, do you prefer LSD? But I also know that you synthesize psilocin, psilocybin. And supposedly, uh, you can always uh, take what Terrence says with a grain of salt, but he, he said Albert uh, Hoffman um, was suggesting that he preferred LSD over mushrooms because mush there's something animate in the mushroom space. Mm. LSD was less animate than, than mushrooms. So, you know, then that brings this whole other notion of what the hell's going on there, right? Like, what are these entity things? Is that just an abstraction of our psyche, an abstraction of parts within us? You know, if we're using like internal family system mm. language, are these archetypes? Where do the archetypes come from? Are they just like, yeah, again, an amplification of us, or are these things actually out there somewhere in the collective unconscious and they're quote unquote real, not concrete, you know, and not something that you can physically touch, but it's a real experience that people have. So now, now you're bumping up against the, the stuff that scientists love. <laughs> but you can't measure, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's so imperative. Like I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like it, I think that this is where we are. You know, often you hear about the ineffable. You have this experience you can't explain. I think that is necessary. I was talking to Sebastian Marcolo about uh, his ideas on on cannabis and fragmented highs and soilless mediums. Mm. But ultimately, we began we began having this conversation about um, you know um science and philosophy and and, and you know he, he said he wrote a paper on on um i'm gonna i'm probably gonna butcher what he wrote it on but it was like something of a some sort of materialism where he says you know what george the paper i wrote for my thesis speaks about folk psychology and in today's world everyone has like a folk idea of psychology like we know what really? love is and we understand this he goes but i think in 20 years we're going to actually understand what love is right now. We just use love might as well be magic. Like we don't know right. what's happening. We have no idea. So in 20 years, we're going to begin to understand why I love my wife. Why I think my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. Mm. She's the most patient person. She's the most amazing woman in the world. And you know, pretty soon I'll know that, Oh yeah, I thought that was love, but really that's the interconnected balance we have between our language, our body language and the way we dance together through our motion. You know, we're going to have an understanding of that. I think that we are right now coming up on the different kinds of language that will allow us to discover that, whether it's a serpent in the mushrooms, whether it's the spirit in the mushrooms, but I think that gets us back to the evolving linguistics that you bump up yeah, against. I can't explain it. So, and you, you can't have an idea without a linguistic framework. And that's why so many people come back from these trips. Like, Hey, I think I have this thing I want to explore. And they find this new idea. Like we're beginning, we're right. just now beginning 
to understand how to communicate. And I think psychedelics, be it be it um, some sort of you know plant that you eat, whether it's a cannabis or whether it's mushrooms or whether it's LSD, all of us allow us to begin exploring this new world of communication. Like that's where this idea that I was thinking about textured language, textured emotions. Mm-hmm. Like you know mm-hmm. what what does it mean when emotions have depth? When, when there's synesthesia between language and emotion, you know, how come right. when, when you and I speak, speak poetry, I get goosebumps or your face yeah. gets flushed. Like we're actually communicating and there's a synesthesia there. Like we don't explore that enough. It seems that on some level, and, and maybe it's the Cartesian model we spoke about that vehicle that I'm glad we got in. I'm glad we hitchhiked and it picked us up and we got us here, you know, it, but, but maybe this new vehicle is going to have an air conditioner in it, or it's going to have a radio. <laughs> The language is getting better is what I'm trying. Yeah. To I mean, you make, like, you make a really, really great point about all this stuff. Um, and I also thinking about the technology and the things that we don't. Yes. Right. Like, you know, what are we not measuring? Cause we don't understand what to measure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's so much room for you, you. And I love like when maybe two narratives that can come together, like um, it was in 2013 at the maps conference, Dr. Joe to for, and you know it's been a while since uh, listening to this, obviously. But he was trying to bridge um, shamanic tradition and Western science together, and talking about from maybe from one of the shamanic cultures. Um, you know, they're talking about maybe this idea of like hungry ghosts, um, mm. or you know, there's this stuff that causes disease in our body. And then from the scientific language perspective, he was saying like that sounds a lot like allostatic load. Right. And so, you know, it's like we have different language for the same experience. Um, And then Jeremy Narby, who wrote um, The Cosmic Serpent, going back to that serpent idea, you know, he he had this whole hypothesis around, you know, since the the, um, serpent is part of the cosmology of, say, maybe the Shipibo, um, that's how they identify with it. But coming from the scientific perspective, like, what about Francis Crick seeing like, or kind of getting the idea for DNA, right? right. And admitting that, you know, LSD played a role. Or you have Carrie Mullis uh, talking about the development of the PCR, right? From that and understanding that kind of. Uh, and then I think, uh, yeah, Narby was saying like, what if we're actually just from our perspective, like looking at the DNA within our bodies when we're going inward, right? And then those visions, I think he went a little bit further saying those DNA actually transmits small photon particles. And what if all those lights and the visions are you tuning in to the body's photon, like, you know, emitting these small photon particles? Um, And it's just a different language, right? You might like one one language and cosmology might understand it from the snake. Another cosmology might view it as DNA and and from a scientific. And it's interesting when we can start to weave those two paradigms together and understand that maybe we are talking about the same thing, but it's a different language. Um, And how do we not dismiss it? Right. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Joe Taffer come um, and give a presentation with us in, in Vital. And um, one of the students asked, you know, are the shamans interested in learning about Western psychology? He's like, yeah, yeah, they, 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 they want to know about it, right? Um, because they only know one system, right? And uh, to, I, I think that's where we, we have to be really cautious when we romanticize mm. um, that, you know, 
some people have it figured out, others don't, right? I think we're all trying to figure it out <laughs> yeah. and we all have different language and, and right. kind of different narrative around how we approach it. So just because somebody's saying that there's hungry ghosts, you know, how do we find some sort of like common language where maybe the science does back some of that stuff up? How's the grief that you're holding on to that you didn't grieve, you know, somebody that died is still inside your body, maybe causing stress and illness, right? And from that perspective, the hungry ghost that you didn't grieve is causing your depression still. And that yeah. ghost is still lingering. Um, and so it will be interesting when science and kind of like, yeah, you called it like folk psychology come together and start to like understand one another. Um, yeah. Um, generational trauma, you mm -hmm. know, it, yeah, it sounds exactly. a lot like that, you know, it's in yeah. translation means interpretation. You can see it in text. Why wouldn't it be in cultures? You know, like mm -hmm. if, if you try to translate something from Hebrew versus the original Greek, like it's going to come different. And who's the person translating it? Like, what does that yeah. person have a motive in there? <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah totally, this definitely totally. says this this says with my property right here it says right there <laughs> it's fascinating to think about on that level and you know on on some levels it's it just i think it speaks to us being a, a somewhat of an adolescent species like we don't know and so we make up reasons why we want to we a lot of people want an authority figure. We want to know why, so we'll make something up. And you know what? This is the guy over here that knows. How does he know? Well, he went to school for it. Well, his dad knew, or you know, but does he really know? Probably not. And like you know, another thing I was I was speaking with um, Doctor um, Ledbedev, who is who is from Russia, and he's done some brilliant work on on different psychedelics. And we were talking about neuroplasticity, and and we we got our, we found ourselves on that on that recent study that came out of Scandinavia where they're trying to take the magic out of mush, magic mushrooms where mm, can yeah. you have the results without the the trip and you know I, I had a pretty interesting trip a while back yesterday where and I think this speaks to the idea that information is revealed to you it's not that you learn it's revealed to you like and I, here's what I had asked them I'm like doesn't it seem to you at least in my opinion that the difficult part of the trip is the physical manifestation of neuroplasticity. Like that's why you can't take it out. Like mm. that's what it feels like to have a, a five months of therapy in an hour. Like you're going to act weird. You're going to see crazy stuff. You're going to freak out because your brain is rewiring itself and it's doing it, you know, in an hour, like that's five hours or three hours of therapy or, you know, maybe five months of therapy or something like that. It seems to me that that is the manifestation of neuroplasticity. Like, why wouldn't it be? But but how would you study that? Like, there's no real way to to keep the baby and the bathwater in there. You know, in science, like that's way too subjective, man. We can't even look at that. We need to we need a we need a slide rule and a compass. <laughs> Which I get from a scientific perspective, right? Like you need things that you can measure. And, of course. But yeah, these are like sometimes unmeasurable things, um, which makes it really hard. Right. And I, I don't know, there's, I think there's definitely like some scientists that I've spoken to that are really interested in it. Right. But yeah, maybe they, they don't always talk about it because of course, they'll, you know, be, they'll be shunned. They're, they're talking. They can't publish if they yeah, do that from, probably. from the scientific perspective. But I mean, these are all the interesting things I, yeah. And that I think as a, and this is part of the reason why Joe and I started psychedelics today was like transpersonal phenomenon is, is very real. And yes. when we were going to these early conferences, 
um, in like 2010, 2012. It was mostly kind of based on the science, which makes sense because we needed to really talk about the science and not be in the transpersonal. But we said transpersonal psychology is going to play a huge role here. What happens when people have these really big transformative experiences? I think I mentioned that term spiritual emergence, the term that Christina and Stan Groff uh, coined. and how do we hold that? How do we make sense of it? And, yeah. you know, I think this is where the transpersonal perspective is going to be really important as the psychedelic field evolves and grows. Um, but yeah, it, but it's also very challenging to, to measure. Um, yeah, that would be an interesting conversation to to either have on my podcast or maybe you guys have had some people come on from like a shamanic perspective and a science perspective you could get two people willing to talk to each talk other about it yeah that would be a fascinating conversation be the it would be the the, the two the kadula or whatever the snakes are going up that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe that is the uh you know like you said it's dna it's the, it's the uh double helix right like francis mm-hmm. crick talked about it's it's yeah. fascinating to think about on some levels. What? What? So you've already had one cohort come through Vital, is, or have you had more? Two cohorts already. Yeah, and we're just about to start our third cohort okay. in, in January. Nice. Um, yeah, so we typically have kicked it off around Bicycle Day in April, um, which has been yeah, it was a fun synchronicity. It just kind of happened to line up that way for the first mm-hmm. year, and then we're like, let's do it again the second year. Um, this year we're switching to January to try to get a little bit more on an academic sure. schedule to have a little bit more kind of like summer break for teachers and instructors and students and whatnot um but yeah so this will be our um yeah this will be our third cohort which i'm super excited about it's been a really wild um time uh developing and teaching in vital i've learned so much like again like i think you know i've been in this world for quite a while thinking i i know some things and then just being blown away by the things i don't know right because this field i like to remind people we're we're just at the beginning kind of in Western society, right? Like indigenous cultures um, have, have like been interacting with these plants for, you know, how, however long. Right. Right. Um, But for Western society, this is still pretty new and we're just at the beginning. And I think there's so much that we can learn. Um, And that's exciting, right? Like new, new new therapy protocols, trying to weave in the shamanic and, and scientific worldviews. Like, you know, so yeah, I've learned so much over the past, like, what is it coming on two years almost. Um, and yeah, the students have been fantastic, really engaged. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just been, it's been a really wonderful journey. What, without giving away too much of the secret sauce, is there like, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the curriculum? Like, do you layer it in a way where, okay, this is the first initiate, like this, the first, in the beginning, we're going to start with breath work or the first we're going to talk about microdosing. Is there like a certain sort of layering that comes in the curriculum or? Yeah, we're doing a little bit of a change this year, but, um, and we're still kind of working on it. So I'm not going to, so I'll talk about like some of the previous years, sure. but it's not going to be like big changes, just little program tweaks from mm-hmm. all the fantastic feedback that we've been receiving yeah. over the years from students. But um, th- traditionally the first module um, we have kind of, uh, oriented it around the elements so Mm. um, earth with earth air fire ether and um what am i missing i always miss one water did i say water i think you missed i think you said water now (laughs) okay (laughs) um and so yeah we we kind of orient it around um the elements and you know there's so many different ways of understanding the symbols and the elements from 
different like traditions and perspectives. Um, so we start off with the foundation module. Um, mm -hmm. And so what is what are psychedelics indigenous perspectives around psychedelics? Um, some of the early research that was done um, in psychedelics. So we've had uh, like Dr. Bill Richards present, mm. uh, who, you know, is maybe along with like Stan Groff and a few others, probably the longest, um, you know, person that's been working in psychedelics that's still alive, uh, present on, you know, what, what that was like in those early years. Um, and then the emerging landscape, how it's evolving and some of the legal and kind of ethics law, law around psychedelics. And so that's kind of like our foundation course. And I, re I relate that to air. And when I think about air, I think about it from um, one of the medicine wheels and thinking mm -hmm. about the mind, psyche, we think about wisdom and eldership. So again, trying to pull on a lot of the elders in the space um, to teach us about what they know, um, what they've lived through, um, and thinking about, you know, how do we move forward um, as, as the field uh, grows and evolves. Um, and then the, uh, the second uh, module historically has been um, preparation, assessment, um, and integration, or no, no, just uh, uh, integration is the last module. I sometimes will lump in integration with preparation because it's all one of the same. Uh, but really thinking about clinical assessment, um, risk reduction, harm reduction, um, like how to uh, have conversations with folks around psychedelics, helping people make more informed um, choices and, and decisions. And then um, we have an experiential component. Mm. Um, so people um, come to a retreat um, and uh, in the past, we've done breathwork retreats and uh, medicine retreats in, in legal countries uh, like the Netherlands and, and Jamaica. And um, so we really think experiential learning is really important um, to yeah. have an experience. And then we do a, a model that Stan Christina developed for the breathwork model where you have a breather and sitter pair. So you get to actually sit with somebody in that non-ordinary state and maybe feel what it's like to sit with folks um, while they're they're in the journey space, which I think is, is really powerful. Um, and people get a lot out yeah. of it too. And then we are really also focused on like the inner work. So we also encourage people to do an experiential elective so they can go on and, you know, maybe it's like taking an IFS training or doing a meditation retreat maybe it's going to a breath work um workshop um yeah. really to continue their their inner work sometimes people have gone to like somebody i think went to like a Jungian therapist to work on their <laughs> dreams you know so it's like yeah. really again encouraging that inner work because i think so much of this is doing your, your inner work um then we have a module on um uh, kind of like clinical application um, mm -hmm. and like all the research that's happened and the research that is happening. So understanding it more from that scientific perspective. Then we have a, a module on navigating the psychedelic experience. So we talk a lot about maybe like what is transpersonal experiences, how to navigate that, um, how to navigate group work, um, right. how to uh, be a little bit more trauma informed and focused. And so weaving in a lot of somatic psychology into that. And then um, the last module is on integration. Um, and, so, and so hopefully by that time, people have maybe done their experiential elective, they've gone to a retreat, um, and then we focus on, okay, you've been through this, now let's focus on what does it mean to integrate these experiences and how do we work through our own process still. Um, so it is a pretty intensive program. I just got off a, a call today. I'm running this inner work group as an elective. And then we have uh, two elective cycles. 
Um, and there's all sorts of different um, stuff. We, we have like classes on, on ketamine for those that are really interested that are working in the clinical space there. We, I'm running this inner work group right now. So focus on dream work and yeah. um, some breath work and stuff like that. And um, we've had uh, like classes on business and uh, all sorts of stuff. So it's a very comprehensive program, very kind of like also broad overview as well. Um, some feedback that I got, a lot of people really kind of appreciate that broad perspective because they don't know what they want to work in and what mm -hmm. they want to do. And so it gives like a nice perspective there. Somebody I think said it, it's like a liberal arts degree in psychedelics, mm. <laughs> uh, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, I, I like that perspective on it. Yeah. Do you have like, it seems like it would be, it seems like it would be a, a, a great it seems like there's a lot of room for strategic partnerships like partnering with like zendo totally. or something like that yeah. or you know going and having your own place set up where hey this this is from the psychedelics today class we're over here we're going to help people you know and it just seems like there's a lot of opportunities for strategic partnerships have you thought about that Totally. Yeah. Always thinking about like pipeline of like, you know, mm. do we have places where students can go afterwards? Sure. How do students build community? Um, yeah. Who are those strategic partners, whether it's like retreats or different services, stuff like that. So we're constantly thinking about it and trying to yeah. create um, those pipelines for, for students and for ourselves as well. Um, so it's slowly growing, you know, the field's evolving as it evolves. And as I like to remind people, you know, we're just in the beginning here. And right. so, you know, there's definitely going to be a little bit of ups and downs and um, bumps in the road as we figure it out. But um, that's also the exciting thing of being part of a, a new emerging field, kind of being on the Great. forefront of it all. So. Um, and a lot of those places, you know, there's only certain limited places where maybe people can go or different businesses we can partner with. So, you know, it's also very limited and people's bandwidth are really limited. We might find like a really great partner, but they're limited in their bandwidth and stuff like that and vice versa. Right. It's like so, you know, as it grows and evolves and the field maybe stabilizes a bit, that will become more concrete over the years. I'm thinking maybe you could partner with Tesla for a new school electric <laughs> Kool-Aid acid test school bus and a new Mary Prankster. <laughs> Why not, right? Like I, I have heard Elon talk about his ketamine treatments and stuff like that, so he might be on board. You know, I, I, I don't think it would take too many people. I, I'm sure we could probably both make a few phone calls to people in Silicon Valley, like, hey, man. Can you sponsor a bus? We're going to get, you know, <laughs> at least you could get it moving down that lane. Yeah, yeah. Why not have a new, you could go from Kentucky all the way over to Colorado, up to Oregon, play some yeah. music along the way. Anyways, it, it's funny to think uh, about. No, so you've spoken a little about yourself and Joe, both awesome individuals. But I, I know that you have a whole team of people that are working yeah. at Vital. Maybe you can shine some light on, on some of the teachers from, from Victoria to Swati to some of the, uh, from Casey, all these people you have working, shine a little light on some of the teachers working with you. Oh man. Yeah. Our team is amazing. And they're just such a dedicated group of folks. And I, right. I mean, me and Joe are just so thankful every day. I'm just like, how do we find such awesome people to work with and people that just feel so kind of committed um, to, to this cause and stuff. So yeah, at PT, like you mentioned, Victoria, um, She's like the head of our, our media department. So um, helping to put out scheduled podcasts and blogs and, and line everything up. And she, she's really a rock star. Swati just came on and is new and is helping us out with some, some of the marketing stuff. And she's amazing as well. Um, on the vital side, um, we have David, um, who 
He is the director of training and education at, at Psychedelics Today. Um, so he's helping out with like course development, helps out with the curriculum at Vital. He, he teaches in Vital. Um, again, like just rock star of a person, um, so sweet and kind. And then Johanna uh, Hilla, she is the coordinator over at Vital. And I mean, she is just, yeah, another just rock star of a person helping to just, uh, you know, keep everything in check. I feel like I just have like a lot of ideas and things like that, <laughs> big picture. And um, she just helps to keep everything organized. Right. And I mean, yeah, I feel like Vital would not be Vital without um, all of her hard, hard work. Um, and then. And it's, it's amazing. Everybody's like all over the place. You know, Johanna's in the UK. Um, David's in Israel. Victoria's in uh, Canada. Um, and then we also have uh, Diego, who's in Australia. He uh, teaches uh, uh, an Australia-specific course for us, um, for, the, for those folks. Yeah, because different regions have different laws, different things. So he's kind of streamlining some Australia related content. He's a, an instructor in Vital. Um, and then also does a lot of our uh, back end stuff um, to uploading content, which is amazing. Uh, and then creating review notes and quizzes and also program development. And um, yeah, he's, he's just awesome too. But it's been fun kind of juggling, um, you know, all the. Uh, all the time zones and, and stuff like that. And then, um, yeah, and then on, on the other side, you know, we have like Rob, our, our sound engineer, who's doing all the podcast stuff. He's been with us for a very long time. And he actually, I think we met him. He came through one of our classes. We had a meetup, met him in person at Psychedelic Science in 2017, which was like really cool. Um, and then um, our uh, guy, Mike, who is doing all the show notes and does some editing and stuff like, you know, it's, uh, I just love all these folks that, you know, our team that's just behind the scenes that people don't always get to hear or recognize, yeah. but they're really helping to just like, yeah, keep things moving. So just really thankful. And then we have a, a video editor, Cal, um, who helps out, um, Alexa, uh, who is uh, kind of head of sales and, and um, kind of, you know, affiliate stuff and helping to, to drive some of that stuff. Um, oh, God, I'm probably missing some folks, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if you're listening and I missed you. We, we do have a pretty robust team, yeah. um, which is really great. It is great. Uh, Kyle, this is, I'm super stoked to talk to you and I'm super stoked on your whole team over there. You have a really great group of people that are really helping a lot of people looking for answers. And I, I think that all of us are very fortunate to be here at this time. In some ways, I think that, you know, we've, we've been passed the torch from, from the giants and are, are standing here trying to shine a light on stuff, even though sometimes we may be fumbling or whatever. I, I really feel blessed just to, to be in the conversation and be around so many cool people that are trying to find the others, if that makes sense, you know, and uh, totally, totally. so, but before I did, we, did we touch on everything or is there anything else we didn't touch on that you wanted to touch base I mean, on? We, we touched on a lot of we stuff. Covered a I'm, lot. Saying, I'm saying we're almost here for two hours. So this has been a really fun interview. I've been having a great time. Not bad um, for our first one. No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> you're great at what you do you keep the conversation it rolling takes one to know really, one. <laughs> yeah really awesome awesome conversation so thank you for having me um, but if anybody wants to check out vital we do have yes. um, applications open um, until december 20th um, and then you can check out more at uh, vitalpsychedelictraining.com um, again our, our cohort kicks off on january 23rd um, of yeah and um, it will go for uh, 12 months and in i think late december early january next year and um or the following year and um 
Yeah. And if you just want to check us out um, on our podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, like right. today, psychedelicstoday.com. Um, yeah. But it's been been a blast. Yeah. And I think on your website, don't you have a downloadable curriculum if people were interested and they wanted to see what it was? We do. Yeah. So if you go to vitalpsychedelictraining.com, um, you can uh, type in your email, get the downloadable brochure. Right. You can check out the curriculum um, and all the, the details and, and information there. Um, and there's some videos on the site. I think there's a video of me kind of introducing it. There's another video um, exploring like our experiential retreats. I think there's a video there like um, of us uh, in Costa Rica. And we, we have this upcoming Costa Rica um uh, retreat coming up in January, January 6th to the 13th. Um, so if you're interested in breath work and you kind of want to know what that's all about and do and get away from the cold, um, we do have that coming up in January uh, 6th in Costa Rica at a place called Blue Osa. Beautiful, beautiful place. Um, yeah. yeah, it sounds awesome. And um, we'll hang on briefly afterwards. I'm going to hang up with our friends on the audience, but I'll talk to you briefly cool. afterwards. Ladies and gentlemen, go down to the show notes. Um, if you find yourself curious Go, go take a look at Psychedelics Today. Check out the Vital Program. Check out the people that are working there. And don't take my word for it. Listen to Kyle. But more than that, go check out the, the people that have been through it and check out some of the people that are working there and do your own work. And, and look, I think it was a, a brilliant conversation. And I, and I think that people who are looking for answers, this may be an area where you want to explore it out. So that's all we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you have a beautiful day. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.